Please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And before uh, I begin, I just would like to say again uh, thanks to the musicians for their uh, tireless efforts. It, it certainly is appreciated and is a blessing uh, to our worship. Even, even, I thank you all, when the people who put the bulletin together pick a bunch of songs that are extremely long. And so thank you for that. And that was me this time. That, that was me. <laughs> so thank you all, but it is, it is a blessing uh, to the Lord. First John chapter 1, and if you uh, are able, please stand uh, as we read God's Word. We're going to be looking at the first four verses this evening. This is God's Word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we write these things so that our joy may be complete. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May we see it. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this day of worship that you have given to us. And now we come humbly to your word and we ask that by your spirit you would teach us and that you would reveal the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory, that we may daily be conformed more and more into his likeness until the day when he returns. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want you, as we begin, to imagine with me for just a moment that you have booked a trip, maybe it's a vacation or a work trip, and you booked a flight to a destination, and imagine with me that you are finding your way to the airport, passing through the lovely TSA security lines, moving then to the gate, waiting the flight. As you board the plane and you begin to take off, one of the things that always strikes me is how those objects that once appeared to be so large, when you find your way up into the sky, appear as like Lego pieces down on the ground. The perspective from the ground appear, makes the objects appear like a totally different size. But there are two views, one from the ground and one from the air of that landscape that you have now uh, are flying over. And in many ways, although every analogy and every illustration fails at some point, there is a lot of similarity in terms of how the scriptures can be viewed. From down below, we see the fine details as they fit into the landscape. But at the same time, looking, as it were, above the Scriptures and seeing the great landscape and 
uh, all of these massive macro details. We see these great themes running throughout Scripture, from the garden to glory, from creation and fall and redemption and consummation. We see even creation to new creation. These macro themes from the 33,000 feet above you. And yet at the same time, as you begin to land on that plane, you begin to see again these micro, finer details of the landscape. And so it is with Scripture. You begin to delve in deeper into the Scriptures and you see these finer details as they fit in to the great redemptive plan of God. This evening, the Apostle John presents to us some of the finer details, some of the micros that fit into the larger picture. And he does so, you may have even noticed this as we read, there is a distinction which the Apostle makes between the we who have witnessed the Lord Jesus and the you, or the us, to whom he witnesses to. You see this throughout the text of 1 John. We have the apostles as the we. Those who have heard, who have seen with our eyes, who have looked upon, and who even have touched the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is those apostles who then, having touched, having seen, having looked upon, now bear witness to the us, or in the text, the you. We proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. There is a distinction in the Apostle John's mind between those of the apostles and disciples who actually were with Jesus and those to whom they manifest Christ too, the us. That is who you and I fall into that category, of those who fall outside of the apostolic witness, but who are witnessed to by those very apostles written down their records in Scripture. If you go throughout the New Testament, differing authors have different ways to describe those who are of the apostles' witness and those who receive the apostles' witness. The author of Hebrews in chapter 3 likens it to God's house-building project. And interestingly enough, Paul, the apostle, picks up on a similar theme in Ephesians chapter 2. We've even sung about some of those themes this evening. Paul likens the church to God's house. God is building a house. Jesus Christ is identified as the cornerstone of the house. And the apostles are likened to the foundation of a house upon whom the church is built. And that is who now we read about. Those who are of the apostles, those who are of the foundation of the church, now recording what they have seen, heard, and even touched, witnessing now to the rest of the house of God. New Testament scholar Richard Gaffin says, to the once-for-all foundational work of Christ is joined the once-for-all foundational witness of the apostles to that work. And that is precisely what the Apostle John is recording for us. The apostles who have done these things are now recording it so that we who have not experienced those things 
may join in with that fellowship, the unique function of the apostles in the life of the church. In similar ways, we have the prophets of the old looking forward to Christ, whereas the apostles are looking back upon Christ and his work. The prophets anticipating Christ and the apostles explaining Christ. The prophets preparing for and the apostles being the deposit of what Christ has done. And it is that witness of the apostles to whom we now are able to read about in the canon of Scripture. Jesus highlights this fact that this would happen in, John, in John's Gospel. John chapters 14, 15, and 16. We have a fair amount of references to this reality. This is often described as the upper room discourse. If you would, turn over to John 14. Just briefly read three texts from this discourse that's describing the work which Christ is now giving to his apostles so that others also may join in this fellowship. John 14, beginning at verse 25. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And skip over to John 15, looking at verses 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And one final text in John 16, verses 13 through 15. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus' words here to the disciples, to the apostles, is that the Spirit will come and remind the apostles of all that Jesus had done so that the apostles could write it down. So that those like ourselves, who never were those who were with Christ, who never saw Him, who never touched Him, might have fellowship with Him. It is that work of the apostles to whom we are dependent even to this day in God's Word. And this is the only place, it is the only place that you will find Christ. You will not find him in any other book. You will not find him in any other outlet but the very words that the apostles have written for us. And so we seek in our aim as Christians to know Christ. Well, where do we come to know Christ? It is only through the Scriptures and the Spirit bearing witness in our hearts to the truths which are recorded in the Scriptures. And so we have the apostles' witness which John records for us. But what is it, what is the object to whom the Apostle writes? You see this in the text in three different ways. 
Who is the object, we might say, to whom the apostles bear witness? We've already alluded to this briefly, but the object is described for us in verse 1 as that which was from the beginning. At the end of verse 1, he is described as the word of life. In verse 2, he's described as the one who brings eternal life. He is the one who is from the beginning. He is, in fact, the word of life and indeed brings eternal life. This phrase, that which was from the beginning, may even jog your memory to John's Gospel. When he begins the Gospel and he says, the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. This language of from the beginning is not so much describing the moment, first moment of creation, but rather it is pre-temporal. The one who was from the beginning, is the one who was with the Father from eternity past. Jesus speaks to this in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. He says, And now, O Father, glorify me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And this Person, this one who was from the beginning is the one to whom the apostles saw and touched and felt and looked upon and now record so that we might have fellowship with them. He's also described as the word of life at the end of verse 1. Again, thinking back to John's Gospel, the word described at the beginning of John's Gospel is then described as the one who was made flesh. This divine word, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took upon flesh for us. St. Augustine has this helpful way of thinking about this, and yet mysterious at the same time. He says this, Man's maker was made man, that he, the bread of life, might hunger. The fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, the truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. The word of life described for us by John is the one who took upon flesh. And indeed, the one who is invisible, whom no eye hath seen, John says, we saw him. The one who caused the people of Israel at Mount Sinai to tremble that no more words be spoken is the one whom the apostles said we spoke with. The one who is spirit. God who is indeed spirit. The second person of the Trinity took on human flesh so that John can say, we even touched him. Absolute mystery. The God 
who created all things. Christ, who spoken about by John in his Gospel, whom without whom nothing was made, that one came so that those whom he created would put him to death. He's also described in verse 2 as the eternal life. The life which this one, God the Son, brings to mankind is nothing else than the life which he possessed with the Father before the foundations of the world. Eternal life. He comes and he gives it to those who are lacking. This is the one who created all things. The one who possesses this life in and of himself took upon flesh so that those who do not possess it might obtain it. This is the object to whom the apostles bear witness to. And it is the one to whom we place our faith into. Thirdly, we see the goal of the witness to whom the object points to. What is the goal? Why do the apostles write these things? It is as verse 3, the end of verse 3 says, it is so that you too may have fellowship with us. And this fellowship includes the very fellowship of that triune God. The fellowship which the Father had with the Son before the foundations of the world in the bond of the Spirit is the very fellowship which we enter into by faith. Jesus, again, records, John records the words of Jesus in, again, John's record of Jesus' high high priestly prayer. Jesus says this in his prayer to the Father, I do not ask for these only, describing the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This communion which the Son had with the Father is now given over to those who believe. And Jesus says, I'm praying Not only for those who have received the word from me, you could say the apostles, the disciples, but I'm also praying, get that? Jesus is saying, I'm praying for those who will believe. That's you. Ever thought about that? Jesus prayed for you in John 17 that you also will believe by virtue of their word the apostles. The goal of the the witness is fellowship with none other than the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see this theme of fellowship all throughout the Scriptures. You see it in the Garden of Eden in the first opening chapters of the Bible. Adam in consummate, we might say, approaching consummate fellowship, but not there yet having fellowship with God, walking in the cool of the day with God, but losing that fellowship 
by virtue of his sin. And you remember the scene again as he is banished from the garden. The cherubim are placed at the outside, barring access to fellowship with God. And as the scriptures move forward, the temple is erected and the veil is placed before the Holy of Holies. And what is on the veil? The cherubim, barring access to fellowship with God. But Christ comes as the last Adam to restore mankind to fellowship with God. And he does so. And you remember the scene when Jesus is on the cross. Isn't it interesting that the words which come from his lips at that moment of agony, they're not words of, Father, oh, the fellowship that we have. But it's, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This one, forsaken, the one who had consummate fellowship, forsaken in order that we might be restored to fellowship. And in that scene, you remember the veil is torn and rent. The cherubim who once barred access to God now fall to the ground. And men and women having been restored to fellowship with God. And we await that consummate fellowship where Christ will return and we will feast with Him in that great day, the marriage supper of the Lamb described in Revelation 19. What a better description for people to understand the intimacy of the fellowship than a marriage feast. And there are different ways that people think about fellowship. The world has one notion of fellowship. We, as Christians, have another form of fellowship. The world's going to tell you that fellowship can be obtained on a horizontal level without ever breaching a vertical level. But we know that only when the vertical fellowship is restored will indeed the horizontal be restored. And there are many thoughts, there are many even ideologies that we may hear about today which seek to tell us that we can be restored with our fellow man without ever referencing God himself. And any, any claim to truth, any claim to that, we know must be inherently false. Because, friends, the only way mankind is ever restored to one another is if first there is fellowship and restoration with God himself. And so that's the second half of the fellowship. It's not only with the triune God, but the fellowship doesn't just stop there. It also includes fellow man. Sinclair Ferguson says that this fellowship happens, again, in two ways. And he says, to believe is to belong. To believe, we may say, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ necessarily entails belonging to his people. Fellowship with fellow man. To believe is to belong. And if you imagine for just a moment that scene of a shepherd calling his sheep together. 
As the sheep grow closer to the shepherd in fellowship with the shepherd, so the sheep grow closer to the other sheep coming to the shepherd. And so we as God's people, as we grow closer to him in fellowship with him, we must necessarily grow closer to one another. That is the design of Christ's bride. The closer we grow to him, the closer we therefore grow to one another. And there are so many applications that we could make. John is going to actually make some of these in the next few verses. And while we don't have time to necessarily look through all those, you could read that for your own. If we grow in fellowship with God, we would expect him to say, then we also fellowship with him. But indeed, he says, the moment you grow closer to fellowship with God, you actually grow closer to fellowship with one another. Verses 5 through 8. And that is why, one of the many reasons, why Christ and one of the great plans for Christ is indeed his church. And that is why it is of utmost importance to be in church, because this is the place where we not only fellowship with Christ, but we likewise fellowship with one another. If you think about this, it's so often the case nowadays where we have Bibles, many Bibles, maybe even in your own home. You may have Bibles upon Bibles upon Bibles. And there's so much easy access to it. It's so easy to think, well, I can just simply do this on my own. I have my Bible. I have my time of prayer. I'm good. And the American mindset may even play into that a little bit. This individualistic sense, without needing a body around us. But it's interesting, at no other point in church history, if you scan this, at no other point in church history was there ever a time when people had such ease of access to the Bible where they could simply say, I'm just going to live as an individual. I don't need the church. Because they didn't have Bibles like we have. They didn't own 50 Bibles. They didn't have a phone that could pull it up in an instant. Do you want to know where they got their scriptures? It was in fellowship with the church. In order to commune through the, in the scriptures with Christ, they had to gather There weren't Bibles all over the place like we have today. And so it's somewhat strange that even in our own day, it's so easy to see and to think that we can live this Christian life on our own. No, friends, we need one another. He sang about it in the church's one foundation. We have union with God the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. Not only with those whose rest is one, but we also have real communion with those who are still here. And to say, well, I don't need the church, I don't need fellowship with one another, would be like telling your spouse or the one whom you're dating, I only want to meet with you once in a while. I had a great time tonight. Let's pick it up next week. We laugh, and yet it's often true for us. No, the one whom you love, the one whom you adore, is the one whom you want to fellowship and spend time with every chance you get. So the challenge for us as well, we want to commune with Christ. As his bride, we therefore must commune with one another. Again, John will go on to speak of this in verses 5 through 8. But fourthly, we also see that not only is the goal of the witness to fellowship with God and one another, but we also see 
that the fellowship which we have actually yields joy in the life of the believer. Verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This dynamic is actually played out, interestingly enough, again, shockingly, in John's Gospel. In John 15, Jesus, describing himself as the true vine, says this in verse 11. Notice the similarities to 1 John 1.4. He says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And John says, We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. True union with Christ inevitably brings about union with one another and subsequently joy and fullness of joy. The way in which this dynamic works, Jesus has a word for the apostles. He gives them that word and Christ's own joy is imparted to those who receive the word. And now John is saying, as those who have received the word and who have joy, we're now passing it on to you so that not only John may have joy, but that you too may have joy. This fellowship with one another yields joy in the life of of the Christian. It is not some stoic reality. It is dynamic. There is fullness of joy. It is not skimpy joy that Christ brings for His people, but fullness of joy. And so as we think about the church, we would long that we not only commune with Christ, but that we would enjoy communion with others, recognizing that when others come to this same fellowship which we have been brought into, Not only is our joy full by seeing these others coming into faith, but their joy, likewise, is also full. And this is why we do what we do. This is why we hold events. And this is why we have Bible studies. So that we as the church would invite others because in fellowship with Christ, we recognize that when we see others brought in our joy, increases through that. When you truly love something, or we're going to say someone, you will long to share that. The joy which you have concerning Christ will lead you to long that others would share in that joy likewise. The hymn says, We long to see your churches full that all the chosen race May with one voice and heart and soul sing your redeeming grace. This is the witness to which the apostles have written for us that we have recorded in the scriptures so that we too may have fellowship with the Father and the Son and that we may, as his witnesses, share that fellowship as we point others, running the race, pointing them to the object of faith, the Lord Jesus Himself. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank You that You have spared us and have brought us into fellowship with Yourself. We thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ, the man from heaven who took upon flesh so that we, those who were estranged 
might be brought into the family of God. Father, as we come into greater fellowship with the triune God, we ask that by your Spirit we would likewise grow closer to one another in fellowship as we await the day, the great and eternal and final Sabbath rest for the people of God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.